Hi, I'm the person whose closet is put in color order, but I'll also pick up an earthworm without thinking twice. In fact, I did yesterday. <laughs> it needed my help. I'm not afraid to be a little messy. Human nature is messy, but nature nature can help us embrace it. I love the brand seventh generation. Their laundry detergent lifts away tough stains with the power of bioenzymes. That's exciting. You wipe your hands on your pants after you pick up an earthworm. Seventh generation is like, don't worry, hug a dirty tree, huff some bark. It's good for you. That is the power of seventh generation. Find laundry detergent and other laundry products at seventhgeneration.com. I love worms. Oh, hey, we just won the 2022 Webby Award for best host, which is a weird thing to say as the host of this podcast, especially since I'm recording this in my sister's garage. So who says you have to be professional to win things? Hi, it's Allie Ward. It's your uh, internet dad back with a fresh episode crafted for you just this week. So acoustic ecology, what the heck is it? So it's what sounds in nature tell us about who's living where. Ah, this whole episode is just like a nature app, but with much more gossip. And we've got one of the world's best for this. So this ologist got his PhD in marine science from the University of Queensland and has worked in conservation in over 20 countries from snow leopard tracking in Mongolia to big grass munchers in Kenya and tiny bugs in Borneo. And he's co-authored tons of research papers, plus a book called Conservation Planning, and is currently the lead scientist and director of conservation for the Nature Conservancy's Asia-Pacific region, and has been given all kinds of awards for using technology and bioacoustics to help save our flaming, gasping, burning acid bath planet. Today, we have this episode for you. So it was a recent scorching hot afternoon in LA. We hopped on the horn and I thought, Man, this is going to be the easiest thing ever. A remote interview with a mic guy? No tech challenges here, but alas. For some reason, his mic was faltering and was super quiet. Can you even believe? I can't. But Jarrett spruced it up in post. We boosted his sound. So what? It's worth a listen anyway. All the other episodes have better sound. Okay, real quick. Just a thanks to everyone who submitted questions via patreon.com slash ologies. Barrier to entry is $1 a month. Hop aboard. Uh, thanks to everyone who tells friends about ologies, who leaves a review, knowing that I read them all, uh, such as one that Emily left a few days ago that read, I gotta say, lady, I hated science before I listened to your podcast. Now I can't get enough. Emily, welcome to the messy, weird world of nature. Let's get gross. Okay, so let's get on with it. We cover everything from how noisy the ocean is, capturing sonic evidence of rare animals, who's the loudest bird and what do they want, how fish apartment hunt, ghosts and infrasound, how much logging is illegal logging, the types of jobs out there for sound nerds who like science, and a weird thing that I have in my backyard with acoustic ecologist Dr. Eddie Game. Is this Dr. Game? <laughs> it is. It's Eddie, please. Uh, okay, Dr. Game. Sounds like a good sounds like a deal. <laughs> oh, and one thing I will have you do um at the start, if you could say your first and last name and your pronouns that you use. Yeah, Eddie Game. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and where am I talking to you from? Where are you beaming in from? Uh, I'm talking from Brisbane, Australia. Oh, I hope that it is a reasonable time there. Oh, yeah, it's it's quarter past nine in the morning, so it's okay. like halfway through my work day, pretty much. <laughs> do you have to get up really early for what you do? Do you know what? I get up early because 
I am so often connecting with people in the U.S. Um, that's mm -hmm. the bulk of our organization is in the U.S. And now you've been working with the Nature Conservancy, right? How long have you been with them? Oh, goodness. Uh, 14 and a half years. It's a long time. Uh, and I have to ask, uh, acoustic ecology, I did not know that this was an ology, <laughs> but what areas does monitoring or listening work in? Like, how do you describe what acoustic ecology is to people? Oh, it's so cool. Um, do you know, and I, I, I don't think many people knew it was a, an ology until you know, probably only mm -hmm. five or six years ago. It really started taking off sort of, you'd hear whispers of it and you know, there were some people in California and some people in Italy doing it. And, um, but now, you know, it's, it's, it's sort of exploding such that I, I think it's going to be impossible to do a, even a basic ecology degree in a few years' time without learning something about acoustic ecology. And so I, I definitely put it firmly in that ecology basket. I, I think of it as one of the great new streams of data. Like when we first started getting satellite images of Earth, you know, it was completely mm -hmm. transformational in the sort of science we could do and the, the insights we could get into the planet. If you're like, w was that in 1992 or like 1874? I gotcha. So the first images humans took from space were by the U.S. in the mid-1940s. So see, right after the Second World War. And it's gotten better since those space blurs. But in 1999, the U.S. and Japan launched a group project, which was public domain images via the Aster imaging system. And the point is, like a rocket with an Instamatic strapped to the front of it, things move fast. Is some of that rise in acoustic ecology because of just technology getting faster and cheaper? Yes, definitely cheaper. You know, I think that that has been a real game changer for how the sort of questions you can ask with acoustic ecology because it used to be the sort of thing, you know, you pay thousands and thousands of dollars to get a decent microphone. And people realize two things. One is that you can do a lot with cheaper microphones and also good quality microphones are getting much cheaper and companies starting to make good sort of field fit for purpose things. And because people were able to put out more microphones, it really means they can sort of start asking different questions that wasn't possible in the past. So yeah, and, and the processing I think has changed a bit too, but I don't think that was ever really the limited. What really happened was you started having computer scientists being willing to engage on this as a topic. But once we started getting the computing science engineers involved, that really helped too. Just a side note. So that programming language he mentioned is called R, and I was not familiar with it, and I went to Google it, and it's just, it's like an app that left out all the vowels and most of the consonants. It's just R. But it says it's an integrated suite of software facilities for data manipulation, calculation, and graphical display. And it's free. That's the important part. Anyone can use it. So go get it, you dirty little nerds. And what about you? Were you... An ecologist first who learned to use acoustic equipment, or did you always have an ear for music and sound recording <laughs> and kind of blended them together? No, de definitely the um, definitely the ecologist. Really. I was a marine ecologist originally, marine biologist, and mm -hmm. worked in fisheries, and then came to, did all sorts of things at the Nature Conservancy. And I was an editor of a journal, and I started seeing manuscripts and research coming out, just little bits of it on acoustic ecology, and I, I realized. Quite early on, I was like, wow, this could help solve a, a problem we have, particularly in Papua New Guinea, for surveying in these rainforests where it's really hard for people to um, know what's happening there because it's so hard to find experts who know 
what they're talking about, you know, a lot of our traditional survey methods wouldn't work. And so that's what got me interested in it. But I, I don't have much of an affinity for sound, actually. I was a terrible musician as a child. I loved listening to music, but I think my, my passion for listening to music actually damaged my hearing. Subsequently, I spent, oh, no. oh, I spent so long at so many from my university days at concerts, and I'm sure it, I'm sure my, <laughs> there's no value of me buying an expensive stereo anymore. Oh, God. But, uh, so no, it's, oh, it's, my God. it's not through any kind of musicality of my own that I got involved in this. You mentioned that you were a marine scientist too. Like, does acoustic ecology work? Obviously, terrestrial and oceanic applications, but how different it is the equipment? Oh, good question. Yeah, really different. But, you know, it, the marine side of things actually was where acoustic ecology resided for many years. Acoustic ecology, people associated for many decades even with listening to whales and dolphins mm. principally mm-hmm. because that was a really good way to, to survey them, put down these hydrophones. Just a quick what's what. So a hydrophone is specifically designed to pick up underwater noise because sound travels 4.3 times faster in water than it does in air. And the pressure of a sound wave in water is 60 times that of air. What? So like your fin-footed, gill-faced ancestors, the field of acoustic ecology kind of rose from these watery depths and then flopped itself onto land sound also. Yeah, as it started to really expand in the, the sort of terrestrial, the land space, sort of when they went back to the the freshwater and marine space, and people started thinking, oh, you know, the way that people are applying sound in the in the forests and and woodlands and things like that. I wonder if we could do the same in the marine space. Thinking instead of about just looking for signatures of individual animals, could we tell something about all the overall sound that's happening? And you know, things are really seem really promising. And you mentioned something about the signatures of animals. What? kinds of noises are you listening for? I mean, I know that we're all thinking like bird calls, yeah. maybe some bats, high frequency, but like what, how do you, uh, how do you even figure out in a sound file who's singing what? Oh, that's a great question. So there's, first of all, there's lots of different animals that vocalize. The biggest group of animals that you hear vocalizing when you make any recording are insects. Oh. And insects, insects vocalize at all sorts of different frequencies at all kinds of times of day. And that's something we can begin to unpick. Sometimes they're really sort of characteristic. Sometimes they're completely unknown. But then you also have amphibians, frogs, obviously, you have mammals, birds. Bats are, I guess bats are another good thing to mention because bats were also one of those animals that people had continued to, to use acoustic ecology to survey just because it's hard to see bats, but it's actually hard to hear them. But if you put out these sort of ultrasonic recorders that record at very high frequencies, you can uh, you can hear bats. And there's a bit of a separation between a lot of work on bats and a lot of the other things we hear in recordings. So if you have a microphone that's really good for hearing bats, it's not so good for capturing the kind of differences between most of the sounds that you and I hear with our, our ears. So human beings that's us, can hear in the range of 20 hertz to 20 kilohertz. And bats are up there just cute in their little cuties in the range of 12 kilohertz to 160 kilohertz. That is 140 kilohertz above our range of hearing. Their conversations go right over our heads in so many ways, which is why recordings of bat noises are usually slowed down. So our ape ears and brains can hear it. Do you want to hear something else? Can I tell you a secret? Go for it. I have 
a bat microphone in my backyard. I was recently selected two months ago to have a bat survey from the Natural History Museum of Los Angeles County. Oh, that's awesome. In my yard. And 15 minutes before this call, Miguel Ordinana, who runs the survey, was coming and checking. We just got the survey back from last month. We have like three bats in our yard, three species, that is, not like three individual bats who just hang out. They were looking for people, and I emailed them within a millisecond. Like, please, my backyard. Please, my backyard. So they installed this tiny microphone, and they come once a month to come and take the sound cards. And this makes me feel a lot better because there are so many times where I've been talking to my dog in a baby voice, very high frequency, or singing to plants, being like, can they pick this up? So they can't pick that up, is what you're saying. No, no not usually. So, I mean, they, 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 you, could, you might... The, the problem is that the frequency of their um, frequency calls is so fast, you have to have a microphone that can record incredibly fast to be able mm-hmm. to, to capture that. And that means the, the sort of longer, slower sound waves of lower frequencies just tend to get a bit blurry in there. Okay. So it's not really good for, for distinguishing between different frequencies for that lower <laughs> end of the range. That makes me feel so much better. I mean, I'm, I was so excited because we already had an interview on the books, I feel like for a while. And then this came up that we got selected to have a bat survey. So I was like, this is perfect. But um, can you tell me a little bit about what animals occupy what frequencies? Yeah, I feel like that, it's got to just be all over the map. It, it is all over the map. So, but, you know, so where I guess most of the frequencies that we're listening to, like human hearing can hear, like there's a best case scenario from 20 hertz up to 20 kilohertz, 20,000 hertz. And that's actually the range that most animals vocalize in. Now, the very, very kind of low end of that range, you do get some some amphibians down there have quite low calls, some mammals. And then there are some birds, like in, in the jungles of Papua New Guinea, you have these amazing birds called cassowaries. Kind of big prehistoric thing, look a little bit like dinosaurs, but they they vocalise very, very low frequency. So sometimes hard to pick out those calls even on our microphones. As you move up a little bit, you get into sort of the, I guess the frequencies that we hear the best at in those, you know, something around three kilohertz. And that's that's really at a lot of birds in that space. In jungles like those in Borneo, you get primates in that kind of space too. And then as you go up higher, you can get yeah, birds at slightly higher frequencies, but you certainly get a lot of insects at, at higher frequencies. You see lots of insects vocalizing up at like 10 kilohertz, 15 kilohertz, even up to 20. Okay, but what does 10 kilohertz or 15 kilohertz or 20 kilohertz sound like? Also, if you were like, oh, how embarrassing, you messed up and some sound effects were missing. Congratulations, you're me. As Jarrett and I were editing this, I kept telling him that the 15 and the 20 kilohertz sound effects were missing. And that's when I read his face and I learned that any sound above 11 kilohertz means nothing to my ears. They're gone. So thanks past me for attending warehouse parties in 2007 with shitty DJs. Let's not do that again. What are some of the questions that you're trying to answer other than what is out there (laughs) yeah so you know one of the ways that we use sound is actually kind of not even to ask like who's who's there or who's making sound but 
what is all of the sound telling us about the health of the environment? Something that we're learning is that in a really healthy sort of intact environment, most of the acoustic space, if you like, gets filled up. Uh, and there's some, you know, some competing ideas about why that might be the case. But one of the key ones is this idea of something called the acoustic niche hypothesis, which is that there's sort of acoustic space partitioning. So because we all want to be heard, all the animals in the forest want to be heard over each other, they mm-hmm. adapt their hearing to a particular frequency and they adapt their speech to a particular frequency. And as a result, sort of evolution of that intact environment means that most of the frequencies get kind of filled up. So if you have a look, you take a recording and see how many frequencies are, are full, how many of those spaces are occupied. It's an indication of how healthy it is. And that we, what we are seeing really clearly in our data, and this is this gets to kind of how we use it, is as environments get degraded, as we use them, we start seeing gaps open up in that acoustic space. And you can sort of measure how many gaps there are and use that as an indication of how intact the forest is and how healthy it is. And that lets us ask questions like, okay, um, the way we're currently using this, let's say the way we're chopping trees, the way we're harvesting, how does that affect the, this particular forest? Or is this area that we have set aside as a protected area, a national park or something like that, is that big enough? Is that sort of sustaining biodiversity or is there something else going on? Uh, and that ability to associate sound, the saturation of the sound with environmental health means you can apply it to all sorts of questions that are really useful for a conservation organization like the Nature Conservancy. So imagine a walkie-talkie that has a bunch of different channels and different organisms evolved to occupy those different channels. And when acoustic ecologists run the data and suddenly start to find silence in those frequency niches, that's a pretty big loud alarm bell that something's missing. So that's so cool. So you can look at it, say we're missing a lot of noises in this area and this area that probably belongs to these type of insects or these kind of migratory birds. And then where do you go from there? Yeah, good question. So, uh, you know, where we started this for us, this acoustic journey was in Papua New Guinea. And Papua New Guinea is a kind of fascinating place because the land is all owned under something called customary tenure. So the communities that live there essentially have control over their land. But it also means that they just they have this sort of one area that they get to work in, and it's very hard to kind of combine and aggregate those. So you don't have these like vast forest tracts of national parks. You've got a lot of forests, but it's divided into lots of different people's ownership, uh, and that puts kind of a maximum size on how much area you could set aside for conservation, especially as people need to have areas also to grow enough food to live, harvest enough trees to build their houses and your growing population as well. So what we needed to know was whether if every community sets aside just a little piece of their forest, is that going to be enough to retain all the amazing species that live in these, these forests, these jungles of New Guinea? And so what we can do is go and look at, look at the patches of forest and record sounds and record the sounds in different kinds of forests and compare them. So what did they find? Actually, we don't see many things missing from forest, but as soon as we start chipping into them to plant a garden or you know remove some of the canopy, then we see that that loss, and we can measure that and continue to kind of track that. What about other types of 
acoustic monitoring, like for poaching, is that used in a completely different way than species monitoring? Yeah, that's a good question. So I guess there's a, there's a few things that have been tried in different places. It's a little different because one of the things that was explored a lot with respect to poaching is whether you can hear things like gunshots or, you know, sort of illegal harvest, bulldozers, chainsaws, things like that. They're very distinctive sounds on recordings, partly because they're also very low frequency sound. A lot of sounds that that people make tend to be low frequencies, which also means they tend to travel a long way. So you can hear them from a long way away. So microphones are quite good at picking up those kinds of things. What's tricky is setting a system in place that would allow you to go and respond effectively to that. So to you know, be able to pick up a sound and to go and respond in real time, that's tricky, especially if so many of the places where this is happening and don't, don't have kind of reliable network connection. So you know, it's sort of an ideal situation, you could set up a microphone that was sending a signal back and someone would go out and immediately say, oh, there's a gunshot. Like that. And, and that, that, that can happen in a few exceptional circumstances, but... In general, that's that's tough to do, especially also at these rainforests are really tough places on gear. So you have a pretty high burden of just maintaining these and being out there mm-hmm. in that kind of presence. And in some ways, you know, when you, when you have that kind of presence in the environment, if you have, if you're there that frequently anyway, that can really help. Mm-hmm. That can really help deter a lot of this illegal activity. How do you work with local groups to ensure that it's okay to do the monitoring and I also, from what I understand, you know, with things like illegal poaching, it's such a complicated socio-political issue too on who is narking on who and all of that. Like how how do you interface with some of the communities doing your field work? Yeah, that's that's a great question. And one of the beautiful things about this sort of ecology is that it really can get more people involved. It's not nearly as specialist as what a lot of previous biodiversity surveys were. So in most of our projects, it's actually local communities that go out and do the, the monitoring. Yeah, you know, we're certainly helping a great deal in terms of, in terms of coordinating the, the processing and analysis of that data. And it's really on our shoulders then to make sure we're working tightly with them on making sure they get to see the results of that and we're, we're thinking through what the implications are. But in terms of going out and doing, you know, sort of placing microphones, that's something that lots of people can can get involved in. So Dr. Game says that acoustic ecologists work in really tight partnership with local communities to gather and analyze data. So those living in the ecosystem can make these collective decisions on areas to develop and the species they might hunt. And studies estimate that globally, 15 to 30 percent of timber plucked without permits. And in Indonesia, for example, that rate just goes up to over 80 percent. 80% of the deforesting there is done illegally. So you don't have to live locally to be so pissed about that and just want to chain yourself to something green. But scientists aren't necessarily in the business of enforcement. So things get kind of tricky there. But ecologists can harvest this useful data using everything from tree DNA to, yes, recording all these critters in the case of acoustic ecologists. What about gear? Talk to me about gear. Are you using old cell phones that are repurposed are you having to get tiny tiny microphones <laughs> is there so much like weathering that has to happen is there wi-fi oh good question all good questions do you know there was a bit of a movement for a while on these old cell phones everyone pretty much walked away from that in the end just because the reliability is such an issue you know when you put the sort of environments you want to do this sampling it's tough on gear 
and it's certainly tough on cell phones. Mm. So mostly for our gear now, we're using kind of purpose-built gear that's pretty rugged and it's, it's fairly basic in essence. So, you know, imagine kind of a little pelican case or a little sort of rugged box could be anything. We like in our gear to have the microphones on the bottom. Um, some people have their microphones sort of sticking out the side, but we found that birds tend to sit on them and things, things <laughs> fall on them. So I like my microphones at the bottom of the, the box. But, you know, funny stuff happens in the field all the time and there's always a lot of troubleshooting. We were doing this recordings in Borneo where we had microphones out for a few, we putting them out for a few months at a time and taking regular recordings, often for full days, and then coming back and collecting them. The first time we did it, Heaps of the microphones had failed and had kind of water in them, which was unusual because you know these are these are pretty rugged things. And what we realised had happened in the end is we we strapped the microphones and their housing so tightly to the trees, and because it's a rainforest, these trees were growing so fast that they had grown over those three months enough to just bend the metal backplate ever so slightly and um, crack the, the seal open. <laughs> And so, wow. well, yeah, so we, we, we realised you've got to, even though we were attaching them with kind of cloth straps so that we'd put them on really tight, you know, this not sort of advantageous to put them on too tight because you need to allow enough room for the tree to grow. Have you ever had any of your gear stolen? Like someone's like, oh, that rules, and just kind of slips in behind you? Ah, you know what, we have not. Um, maybe the sort of places we're working in, we've had trees fall on them and they get broken. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've had, often you have forest rats and things like that eat the, eat, eat, you know, the foam, the foam um, dampening around the outside of the microphone. They like that. So often you come back and all you just see is the kind of bare, bare steel on the microphone. <laughs> um, oh, <no. laughs> it's okay. You, know, you still get it. You still can still get decent data out of it. But uh, most of our the work that I've been involved in has been in fairly um, remote areas and on lands managed by communities or forestry companies and there with the blessing of the community or the company. What about just noise pollution in general? Speaking of humans, how much louder is earth getting or is it getting quieter because we're losing species? Ooh, good question. I think it's overall it's getting quieter. So really? Yeah. Yeah. In, in quite a meaningful way, that's one of the kind of shocking and most consistent things we see in our sampling, especially across the, the areas that I work in, Asia Pacific, is that usually environments have these two big peaks of acoustic activity. Like we call them the dawn chorus. You also have the dusk chorus at the end of the day, and they they really are massive peaks of, of acoustic energy because you've got lots of species vocalizing around that time. Sometimes that's just actually where a lot of species have their peak of activity in those sort of crepuscular moments, say the end of the day. But then you also it's a moment of changeover between the nighttime species, nocturnal species and daytime species. So you just have these, usually when you look at a spectrogram, a, a chart of sound energy, you just see a huge peak in those morning and, and evening sessions. And what we see is as the environments are getting degraded, just so consistently you see those peaks diminishing. The more damage you do, the more heavily we use environments, it just sort of flattens them out, dampens them down. And so we, we often talk about kind of the great silent dawn in a way that's sort of covering these environments. So you, you're right, there's concern amongst many people about acoustic pollution, about the increasing amount of anthropogenic noise you see in these environments. And, and no doubt there's, some, there's probably some issues there. But overall, I think that it's becoming a quieter place. 
Wow. I never, ever would have thought that. I would have thought that it's just getting more and more cacophonous with cars and beep beep. And uh, that's that's scarier and sadder than I thought. Yeah, it is sad. And yeah, I, mean, I think it was a sad realization. We started seeing that too, just just how consistent that is and just how, how striking that is. And it's how, how different it is to, yeah, you're right, the day-to-day experience that you and I have in kind of noisy environments where there is a lot of sound. But and mm-hmm. that one of the things that blows people away if they ever get the chance to experience it is the amount of sound that you hear in really healthy forests, and especially if you get a chance to go to a rainforest. And even more so, actually, if you get to go to a rainforest or get to take a recording in a rainforest and put headphones on, my goodness, the amount you can hear, I mean, it's just staggering. Mm-hmm. And that, that's, what we're, that's what we're losing. What are the decibel levels like in a rainforest? <laughs> Question. Um, in our microphones, we have a, a decibel cutoff just so we are not getting over, you know, so we have an idea of basically how far away things are going. Whether it's really loud or not often depends on whether you have a couple of characteristic animals close by, cicadas or uh, really loud, some, some really loud birds. They, they can be genuinely noisy. So if you listened to cicadology, you may remember that in North America, there's just a bunch of horny male cicadas that just scream their sexual intentions at nearly 100 decibels, which is about the volume of an ambulance siren, or 20 decibels louder than a Slayer concert. Is there anything more metal than that? There is. And it's a bird called the Screaming Peahaw which has been recorded at 116 decibels. But boy, howdy, hot damn. Hold the phone. Something is louder than a South American screaming piha. The Northeast Amazonian white bellbird just busts into the tree party and announces its presence at 120 decibels. White bellbird? How about white loud as hell bird? And as someone who's been in the mosh pit at a ministry show, but never stood in the middle of a rainforest, I now know which one is more hardcore. It's not so much the overall decibels, it's just the, I, know, I guess you'd say almost like the, the acoustic complexity, like the, mm-hmm. the amount of sound that's coming at different frequencies, even if each of those is not particularly loud itself. And that's also one of the great things about analysing sound. You know, if we just listen to it, our hearing tends to get blown away by those loud animals, but the mm-hmm. microphone and the data in the computer doesn't. So, you know, if you have a really loud animal calling, it's still calling at a discrete set of frequencies. So it's the distinct species calls and the bigger trends that they're looking for. And by looking, I mean listening, but also looking. So not, not just listen, but also look at them on the screen, on the spectrogram, and try and separate out individual calls. And even if we don't know what species it is, we can still identify, oh, hang on, that's something else calling. There's a really good relationship between the number of animals calling and the overall saturation. And what that means is that you kind of no longer need to count the animals every time. You can just look at this overall saturation, which is quite quick to count. However... There is a, you know, it's a really interesting emerging bit of research that um, I'm sure will get, will get more and more sophisticated, which is using algorithms to try and count the animals that are calling, to actually use some sort of machine learning tools to separate out all of the vocalizations into separate calls and say, oh, yeah, you know, there's 200 different animals calling in this 
half an hour or whenever it might be. That's a great, that's kind of a fun emerging area of research. So is AI starting to step in and, and be able to really do that analysis? Does that mean that there's a bunch of data analysts and computer programmers that can get into this field too? Totally. And actually, when I first started getting into this, and I often give talks to people, that's one of the things I was emphasizing. You know, like this, you don't have to be a kind of khaki wearing ecologist who just loves tromping around the rainforest to make a really meaningful contribution here. In fact, we need all the people that are, that are programmers and computer scientists and sound engineers, the sort of people that could get involved and could make contributions that are hopefully intellectually stimulating for them. And we are seeing AI and machine learning tools being used more and more. And especially as we build up bigger and bigger data sets, there's a chance to analyze them more thoroughly. Still at the beginning of these early stages takes a fair bit of human validation. You've got to provide some training to even the best algorithms, but it won't be long until we have some really well-working automated algorithms that can help with a lot of this. Where do people go if they want this type of job? If they're like, oh, I'm a sound engineer, I'm a computer programmer, I so want to work on this. Like, where are the jobs? Oh, good, good question. So, you know what? There's a bunch of different university groups, I guess, now researchers picking up this space. And that's one of the things that they have realized they need to recruit people with these kind of skills to do this work. And so some some research groups have sort of made that their specialty. We've been really lucky. We work a lot with a, a group at the Queensland University of Technology who are really computer scientists and sound engineers. That's their thing. They've been wonderful partners for us. Yeah, we had a, a listener... Alex Ertman wrote in and said, this sounds like my dream job. I've been studying auditory neuroscience for a few years, but I've been thinking of pivoting into conservation. So yeah, there are people who are like, oh, this is a job you can have. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is. About, and, um, I, I just, I mean, I really think there's going to be so many more of these. It's already one of those things that I'm seeing the kind of for-profit environment space get into too. So those people that are responsible for doing environmental impact assessments or environmental monitoring, you know, and that might be associated with natural resource extraction industry. So if you run a mining company or a forestry company or something like that, you usually need to pay someone to help do some of this environmental monitoring. Almost all of those firms doing that are now like, oh, wow, okay, I've got to have a sort of acoustic ecology side of things because it's such a useful tool for us. So I think the number of jobs in this space are, are going to really grow too and not just be in that research space but a lot of, a lot of sort of net for-profit environmental monitoring space as well. And ethically, does that help the mining company make less of an impact or are there ever any ethical concerns like I'm taking money from a mining company in the rainforest? Oh no. <laughs> yeah, good question. I'm, I mean, uh, hopefully that's the point of doing this ongoing monitoring. One of the big challenges with lots of environmental monitoring in the past is that it really relies on who's doing the counting, right? And you and I would count differently, even if we we're sort of trained almost identically, we would still probably count slightly differently. And you know, that would be the same if we went to the forest, we would hear different things and see different things. But microphones, if they're calibrated the same, hear the same thing, no matter if you put it out or if I put it out, there's actually a chance to, to get some kind of more more robust, more pure data in this way that that should alleviate some of those ethical concerns. Now, what you know, what a mining company does with that information, and what their government does, what the sort of permit people issuing permits do with that information, can be another question. But I wouldn't have any sort of fundamental concerns about using tools like this in service of understanding the impacts of extractive industries. 
Can I ask you some questions from listeners? Go for it. Okay. And we'll just lightning round. We'll go through as many as we can. How does that sound? Go for it. You know what? Let's go for it. But first, let's make it rain, Forrest, on a worthy charity this week. So Dr. Eddie Game said to send it to the Nature Conservancy. They are a global environmental nonprofit, which is doing tons of good shit. The Nature Conservancy has a diverse staff. They work with over 400 scientists to impact conservation in 76 countries and territories, working also with local partners to tackle the dual threats of climate change and biodiversity loss. So more info is up at nature.org, and we'll be making a donation in Eddie's name, thanks to sponsors of Ologies. This podcast and my life is brought to you by Squarespace. Do you know that I didn't have a website for forever because I was putting it off because I was scared? And then I heard another podcast talk about Squarespace. I was like, I'm going to give it a shot. I had a website up that day. They have beautiful templates. They host. Squarespace is the all-in-one website platform for entrepreneurs to stand out and succeed online. Look at me. Even I did it. You can sell products. You can sell your time. They have this guided design system. It's called Squarespace Blueprint. You can select from a layout. There are styling options. You can get your website discovered with these integrated optimized SEO tools so people find you when they Google. They also have easy to use payment tools so check out, very easy for customers which is what you want. There's also Squarespace AI which can help you explain what your site is about. You can choose your tone. Whether you're a scientist who wants to share your work with the world, whether you are starting up a business selling tiny paintings of tiny books or a choreographer selling dance classes, head to squarespace.com for a free trial and when you're ready to launch, go to squarespace.com slash ologies to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or a domain. I recommend it to all my friends even when I'm not recording an ad. Okay. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Listen, we're all carrying around just a backpack of stressors and sadnesses. When we keep them all zipped up and the load gets heavier, it can start to affect us negatively. You start to feel misunderstood, sad, resentful. A safe place to unpack that is, you guessed it, therapy. Therapists can help you dump out your bag and work through the heavy garbage that's weighing you down, in my case at least. I've used BetterHelp. They have definitely helped me understand that pushing my feelings down does not actually make them go away. It makes them feel worse. So if you've been thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient and flexible. It's suited to your schedule. You fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. It's so much faster and easier than trying to hunt down a therapist from just online listings and cold calling. That's one thing I love about BetterHelp. And if for any reason you're not vibing with your therapist, you can switch anytime, no additional charge, no drama. So unburden yourself and trauma dump onto someone who's trained for this. So get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash ologies today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash ologies. Oh, Kiwiko. We love you. Kids love you. Parents love you. Uncle Allies love you. Here's the deal. So whether you're staying at home or you're heading out on some summer explorations, KiwiCo is inviting kids, also kids at heart, that's you, to enjoy their first ever summer adventure series. So kids from two years old to teens can receive six hands-on science and art project kits over six weeks. They have something for everyone. They have different topics for each age, whether your kid wants to explore space or learn about dinosaurs. And I've heard from my parental friends that summer can be a little challenging to keep the kids busy. KiwiCo's like, we did the legwork for you. And the Summer Adventure Series is this personalized experience with super fun activities like a bottle rocket kit where kids 
can build an actual bottle rocket. And you can either receive all of your summer adventure crates at once or weekly for six weeks. I think it's so amazing that they have different crates for different ages, everything from the great outdoors that has like giant bubbles or a window garden to a trebuchet kit for ages nine to 14, an entrepreneur where you can do textured clay projects. If you have kids, if you know kids, keep them occupied and learning and having fun this summer with KiwiCo. And you can get 20% off your summer adventure series at kiwico.com slash ologies summer. That's 20% off your summer adventure at kiwico.com slash ologies summer. Oh, have fun. You know what's essential to science? It's not a lab coat. It's skepticism. You know me. I'm down rabbit holes. I'm looking at charts. I'm checking conflicts of interest at the bottom of published papers. And this is helpful because it means I don't buy stuff I don't need. And if you're one of me that can spot a too-good-to-be-true health hack from like a mile away and you read labels like it's your job, congrats, you're a skeptic. One brand of vitamins that is literally made for us is called Ritual. It's a multivitamin that exceeds our standards. They have clinically backed Essential for Women 18+. It has high-quality, traceable ingredients. They're in clean, bioavailable forms. They're also a certified B Corp, female founded. Just today, one of my powerhouse friends was like, "Ah, found out I'm vitamin D deficient. I was like, yo, ritual, dude. When I forget my multivitamins, there's much less pep in my step. I have noticed. They're also very beautiful. They look like tiny lava lamps with little tiny beads in them. There's actually a scientific reason for this, but I got to wrap it up. So no more shady business. Rituals Essential for Women 18 Plus is a multivitamin you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month at ritual.com slash ologies. Start Ritual or add Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash ologies for 25% off. Get that D. Okay, you hollered questions via Patreon, and we listened. So I got to say, Eddie says that you all have really good questions. So every time he seems impressed with a question, just feel free to maybe do a very, very tiny, imperceptible butt dance that only you know about. Here we go. Okay, so um, Jesse and Jaswan were both interested in, in Jesse's words, is there a standard way to describe sounds scientifically? Like, are there words that everyone agrees on to describe what something sounds like? Oh, that's such a good question. Um, you know, I don't think there is. That there has been a little. There was a little bit of a push to do some standardization in the way we talked about sounds and the way we analyze sounds. And, and I was at a meeting about five or so, four or five years ago, where there was sort of a big community of acoustic ecologists around the world, and that that was all anyone talked about was: do we need a standardized way so we can all be talking about the same thing and doing the same thing. My sense at the time was it was just just kind of too early for that. That would be cutting off a lot of creativity. A lot of people are still just figuring out interesting stuff to do and it was kind of growing every day. So my guess is we'll get to a point where there is some more standardised language, but we're not there yet. Mm -hmm. Still emerging. We're listening for more details on that. I think that's one of the cool things about acoustic ecology. It's still a field where people say, oh, I've got a good idea about how we should talk about sound or use sound. And people are really receptive at the moment. Yeah, that's so good. There were several patrons. Kelly, the nature nerd, also wrote in and asked, do you feel like there's a lot of opportunities out there in this field? So yes, good to know. <laughs> conservation, conservation nerds, get on it. Okay, great question. Miranda Panda and Mike Monikowski both asked, are there animals that people have heard but not seen before? Oh, good question. Uh, there probably is some. The ones that really come to mind though, are ones that we, we've heard for a long time and took a long time to find. And as a great example here in the deserts of Australia, it's something called the night parrot. It's almost like a mythical 
bird that had been only seen a couple of times by sort of reliable descriptions of it. We knew it was there and, and we started hearing it. Hear that bell? That is the sound of a night parrot. People started putting out microphones and recording it. It still took a long time to find it, but, uh, but we knew it was there in some of these remote desert areas of Australia because of, we were hearing it. I bet there's quite a few cases like that where we're using sound to find the presence of animals that then are very, very difficult to actually see. Okay, so remind me to do an entire episode on this bush-dwelling night parrot of Australia because there is gossip and it is hot. So first off, this bird has absolutely baller aliases, including the porcupine parrot and the midnight cockatoo, which will be my code names if I'm ever a spy. And people thought it was extinct. They were like, it's so dead. And then a guy saw one in 2013 and photographed it. One ornithological enthusiast named Sean Dooley called this sighting, quote, the bird watching equivalent of finding Elvis flipping burgers in an outback roadhouse. But People started to debunk that evidence, and the whole thing was shady. And then acoustic ecology confirmed some calls, and using leads from Aboriginal knowledge, the bird was confirmed to exist. Everyone's like, it's alive. It's not well, but it's alive. Are you a birder on the side, by the way? Do you know, I'm not at all. And in fact, oh. I did my graduate study in a lab that was completely full of birders. So I think I actually partly <laughs> purged my brain of birding knowledge so that I wouldn't have to compete with them in any <laughs> That's so funny because I've I have heard that birders there are different like lifer lists. If you hear an owl hoot but you don't yep. see it, some people count that, some people don't. But if you're an ecologist, you count that, right? Totally, totally. And uh, you know, I I work with a great many birds, and many of my close acoustic collaborators are they're very keen birders. So there's a lot of enthusiasm amongst the birding community for acoustic ecology. Oh, for sure. I'm sure it's also like, is that cheating? <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, that, 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 you could you could do many podcasts on the ethics of, of different birding, you know, whether you're allowed to yeah. play back sounds of a, of a bird to, to get it to come out and things like that. Oh, we had actually a ton of questions on that. And let's see, from listeners, Elijah and Specs Owl. A few people wanted to know, is calling back to animals a terrible thing? Is it ethical? Do the animals know that we're having interspecies conversations? Elijah wants to know. So, yeah, have you heard anything in acoustic ecology about whether or not calling to an animal to get it to call back is is okay? Yeah, that's good because, I mean, it, it's something that's worth considering the ethics of. I think whenever you do research or do a study that would involve a playback, that is a good thing that that goes through some sort of ethics consideration. We're getting we're at demo at that stage now. I said I think there's a lot of utilities. It really can be very useful to do that. I'm thinking particularly in cases of like you know, there's some really rare frogs. For instance, there's a really rare frog. An amazing thing if your listeners get a chance to Google it. They should Google the corroboree frog in Australia. Mm-hmm. And it's really difficult to see a small corroboree frog, but they happen to have this feature of liking to call back. So it's a really useful way to work out how many are there if you go and do a call and then record the sound in the room and you hear these callbacks. Hey, frog. Hey, frog. So I think, it, I think there can be some really good reasons to, to do those callbacks. 
Um, but yeah, it, it's worth considering whether there is kind of any likely to be any kind of behavioral implications to the animals of doing that. And it's funny, we, we were trying to understand how sound moved through the environment in, in Borneo because one of the things that we came to realize is that microphones hear different different distances from them depending on how dense the environment is, kind of whether you're on a hilltop or a valley, things like that. And we wanted to build some statistical models that would allow us to correct for how far a microphone could hear so that we were comparing each microphone the same. So we climbed to the top of a, a tree and we were we were pretending to be gibbons. So we strapped a, a big speaker to the top of a tree and played these gibbon sounds. And we had microphones at different distances and we were seeing how strong the the gibbon signal was there because we wanted to use it to survey gibbons. And gibbons are an amazing creature. They're sort of the most iconic sound of the, certainly of the kind of Bornean rainforest. But we were just doing this to record the, the artificial gibbon sound or the, the plate that comes out. But of course, all the gibbons in the neighborhood suddenly like, who's this new set of gibbons here? What what are you doing here? And I uh, came over and started calling and saying, hey, this is our patch. You should get out of here. Uh, wow. <laughs> but yeah, the gibbons probably didn't appreciate suddenly hearing a bunch of new right. gibbons in their, in their territory. <laughs> They're like, do you mind? Yeah. Do you mind? Yeah. <laughs> okay, just a heads up. So mimicking calls or playing recorded animal noises, it's kind of a dick move. Now, do some people play owl hooting from a Bluetooth speaker to try to get a glimpse of an owl on their deck? Absolutely. And bird scientists hate those people because the owls show up. They're so ready to get it on. They're either there for a mate or they think they got a throw wings at a rival and it's just you there smelly in a bathrobe on your porch taking pictures of them so don't make a bird hate you birds are so much cooler than us we had a ton of listeners carrie ximo uh garvey's carly v shelby reardon ewan monroe kelly the nature nerd and beth Falouz, first time question asker in beth's words what's the biggest surprise you've experienced when listening back to a recording or what are just some of the weirdest eeriest sounds that you've heard Oh, good question. Do you know, um, this is going to sound funny, but that one of those things that's quite eerie when you're listening back is when insects come really close to the microphone. I'm thinking mosquito, just even like a common mosquito. So most of the time you're hearing all these wonderful, and then occasionally you hear this kind of like, it's, it's like a science fiction soundtrack of the mosquito sound just getting a little bit closer. And, and when you hear it, when you've got headphones on and you're listening and, and sort of very kind of, it's a very kind of acute sound you hear of it coming in and, and landing on the microphone and then going off again. That that is all, it sort of never ceases to be a little bit eerie. Are you ever tempted to sample and make some tracks? Like Specs Owl asked if you're interested in the work of Chris Watson, who makes nature sounds into avant-garde music. Are you ever yeah. This would make a pretty good beat. And do you know what? And it is, and some of our sounds have been used in, in lots of different ways too. So some of our recordings from Papua New Guinea got turned into a piece of orchestral music actually in for, for some concerts at one point. And a, a close colleague of mine has a pretty avant-garde group that involves electronic music and a double bass and fish sounds that recordings that they've taken in rivers and it's, it's very cool we, we even did a live performance once it was it was pretty <laughs> what is it called oh okay. um, simon linky is the person is the guy who set it up he's at oh. griffith university in australia so you could look up him i don't think the group actually had a name but um they performed at a, a festival with a wonderful sort of live mixing of fish sound recordings taken from their acoustic ecology work and electronic and double bass <laughs> 
fish sounds. And we had some questions about COVID and whales. Meryl Stark wanted to know, tell me more about what happened when shipping was shut down in the North Atlantic during COVID and everything went quiet. And Alana Wood wanted to know, how much does noise pollution mess with whale and dolphin calls? And Antonia Clark and Eilf Holmes also asked about underwater noise, because you mentioned that it's getting quieter on land, but are things different in the ocean? Ooh, lots of good questions there. And, you know, I, I'm probably not best placed to say, to, to speak a lot to what happened in that kind of COVID shutdown and the response you saw in the North Atlantic. But certainly we know that the sort of acoustic interference of cetaceans, whales and dolphins is a pretty big issue and that it is harder for them to communicate and navigate well in places that are really busy with a lot of acoustic sounds. And I think I said earlier that, you know, these low frequency sounds travel so far and that's especially true in water. The diesel engine of a ship is one of the lowest frequency sounds you hear. And so the, the extent of that pollution is extraordinary. One of the most amazing sonic experiences I've ever listened to was a woman here in Australia called Leah Barclay. And she, what she had done was put, had microphones that drift down the coast and she, she had them floating and recording down the eastern coast of Australia. And we listened to these in a dark room with sort of with speakers all the way around us. And it was like this sonic journey as you come down from the, the Great Barrier Reef and as you get closer to the cities that have big ports, Sydney, things like that, it just the, the sound, even when you're tens, hundreds of kilometres away, you just hear this sort of grumbling sound. growing growing until it sort of takes over the entire soundscape and then fades away again as the as the drifting microphones went past these cities extraordinary wow. experience it gave me such a sort of insight into just how altered that sonic environment is in the marine space and does that interfere with echolocation maria manzer wanted to know are mammals you know like dolphins and whales and bats are they using acoustic ecology and do those human-made acoustics really mess with them yeah, good question. I mean, that, that I think there is quite a lot of evidence supporting the idea that those human sort of anthropogenic sounds, I'd say, that, that they do interfere with the ability of whales and dolphins to communicate. And, and what's probably less clear is you know, sort of how that manifests in terms of behavioural changes. But I think there's definitely an impact. And one of the things we're learning when I said about underwater sounds is that there's a lot of things other than whales and dolphins that are using sound cues. So there's a hypothesis even that fish on the Great Barrier Reef, for instance, use the sound of reefs as a cue to find them. You know, they're drifting around in the plankton in this sort of vast ocean, and the reefs are actually very small in comparison to the vast ocean. And these tiny baby fish larvae are drifting around the ocean just looking for some slice of reef to call home, and acoustic ecologists think that they're using sound to find them like the tiniest, most critical game of Marco Polo with like a new landlord. We're certainly seeing evidence that when you see things like coral reefs get degraded either through coral bleaching, you know, climate-driven events, or through other forms of degradation, pollution, sediment, things like that, they are getting quieter because the same thing you're seeing happening on land. You're just losing some of the vocalising diversity from those environments, and, and that is probably having a bigger impact than we realize on the overall ecology of this to how animals sort of navigate their way around those environments. And 
are all of these animals actually hearing or are they sensing the vibrations? Like Batman Flight, who's a chiropterologist, um, asked if any animals use infrasound to send messages further. Like, How much of this is so, so low that it's in kind mm-hmm. of another realm for us? Yeah, good question. I mean, possibly lots. I mean, this, I guess if you go back to the very early ideas of of how sound and involved as communication, probably the earlier versions were just things that vibrations that we felt, vibrations that we made and were felt as vibrations. There's actually a, there's a book recently out by an American author, David Haskell, I think it's called Sounds Wild and Broken, and he talks a lot about the, the origins of, of sound. And there are still lots of animals that are communicating through the vibration. They're not hearing it, certainly not in the way that we hear sounds. You know, we fairly unique having this, have, I guess, he- hearing through the air in the way we do. But you know, hearing through things like water is a, is a way of really feeling and that lots of animals are, are essentially hearing vibrations in the water. Have you ever heard the thoughts about infrasound and the roar of a lion and why that's so terrifying to some mammals? Does that ever come up in oh, your work? no, I don't know that. <laughs> It's like apparently it's some some really low frequency that just like hackles go up and some ghost hunters or people who are looking into ghosts uh, have found that just a low, low rumble from a fan will give us the same eerie feeling that so something that we can't hear. But we're like, I, I got really spooked when I went in that basement. It's just because there's like a fan that's going too low for them to hear, but they can kind of sense it. Oh, fascinating. Yeah. Do you know, that's interesting because one of the things I, I had read in um, David's book, he was describing how the way that we often hear sounds of dinosaurs in films are nothing like what their anatomy would suggest they made. <laughs> and in fact, the, the sounds that they give to, that they, they, they use for Tyrannosaurus and things like Jurassic Park. Are a combination of really like slowed down baby elephant trumpets and lion roars because it induces the response that they want the Tyrannosaurus to produce in us. I wonder what they actually sounded like if they were like, hi. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, the <laughs> reptiles hear differently. Um, and so, you know, they, they certainly were able to make sound, but probably quite different to sounds that we think are sort of characteristic to our, our current hearing and the way we hear. Yeah, I mean, just based on how a chicken sounds, <laughs> yeah, not, exactly. not too scary. <laughs> exactly. Last listener question, one sent in from Celeste who said, have you ever listened to or studied uh, the sound of a creature who's on the brink of extinction or who has since become extinct? I find this notion to be incredibly depressing, and yet it is the question I have. And Timothy Wang said how to feel less shitty about the world losing rainforests cry face emoji any any hope any any way that you deal with things emotionally yeah you know that, that is a good question um and it's something that i have to deal with really frequently you know what, what what gives me hope is what how thriving i see even small patches of rainforest you know we've given a lot of abuse to this planet but if we can even just save some small pieces it's uh, uh, just astounding how much biodiversity can be protected in them and one of the places i've been lucky to work enough in is in borneo and there's this one patch of forest it's not particularly big i mean i guess it's a, it's, it's certainly decent size by sort of built up standards so fifty thousand acres or so when you look at it on a map it seems tiny but when it's dense rainforest that's hard to walk across and 
it wasn't that long ago that we rediscovered a species of primate, even a, a langur, a monkey, that was thought to be extinct, that has a right. troop of them in this area. And so I was thinking, wow, you know, like if you go places like this and you see what, what has been left intact, you go, there, there, there's hope that we're, we're not going to wreck it all. And if we could just find a way to kind of s- sort of stop the hemorrhaging of these forests, which I really do think is going to happen. And I just think that's going to be untenable. And then a lot of people are starting to realize that on lots of levels, then, you know, nature will come back. Also, if you listen closely, you can hear morning birds just chirpity cheeping right behind him. So what this episode lacks in microphone quality makes up for with bird cameos. We did it. Do movies and TV, do they get rainforest sounds right? If you go to the Rainforest Cafe ever in like Las Vegas, are you like, this is so wrong? No, sometimes they do actually. They get, sometimes it's pretty good. I mean, they're the sort of people often that are, the people that are collecting the atmos for uh, for these recordings, they're often people that go into this kind of sound recording and sound ecology. So we've been lucky in sort of the ecology space to recruit people who are already interested in, in rainforest sound recordings. Now, what we often don't have is the way to play it back to ourselves that, can mimic an actual rainforest environment because you need to have you know a whole pile of different speakers so sort of almost 360 degrees immersion and and the ability to have speakers that can really reflect those different frequencies so it's probably less about the actually what the recording is and how we get to listen to it again i have never thought about that like that kind of surround sound plus smells and humidity and snakes and bugs and birds ah what about those apps that have gentle rainfall or bird sounds? I always ah. want to know who's out there recording rain. <laughs> Do you know, that's so funny. Um, oh, I guess you, you, you hear a lot of rain when you're in the rainforest. Uh, there's no, mm-hmm. it, it's one of the sort of bane of our recordings is filtering out rain. But, you know, <laughs> I do not find rain, like healthy rainforest is not relaxing. To listen to um, like when, when you're listening to that like gentle rainforest sounds that's like either you know, like the middle of the day when things are at the quietest and just hearing a little bit of sort of gentle sound every now and again like if you're actually listening to a rainforest that's like it's peak activity like a, yeah i don't think anyone would describe it as kind of calming <laughs> <laughs> well you know you mentioned that you're an early riser do you enjoy the sound of birdsong as you know, it becomes dawn yeah. as the sun comes out. Yeah, I think it's, you know, I enjoy being in, in nature at that space. It is, you know, it's a time when, when nature's really alive and, and it is also often a time before people get up and start moving around. So I think there's something special about being out um, and about mm-hmm. in nature at that time. What about the hardest thing about your job? What is so frustrating? Oh, you know, um, without question, and I'm going to totally um, watch this this quote, but, you know, I remember someone said once, um, might have been E.O. Wilson, you know, if you live in, when you have a sort of price of an ecological education is that you live in a world of wounds. And that's definitely that's definitely a bit true. Like you often see things, like, oh, wow, you know, wow, we've given that a hiding. Um, and that's probably the toughest part. I mean, I'm lucky because you get to sort of get up each morning and try and do something about it. But... it's tough also seeing that. And I imagine that's true for many, many different professions that work in that kind of, I don't know, crisis response type situation. Also, the late E.O. Wilson was a biologist and a naturalist. And I debated leaving that quote in because E.O. Wilson has been criticized for being 
little racist from what I gather. And I am elated to inform us all that that was actually a quote from Aldo Leopold, who was an ecologist and the granddaddy of wildlife management. And the full quote is, one of the penalties of an ecological education is that one lives alone in a world of wounds. So that was an Aldo Leopold quote. And I looked up his history and he was born in the late 1800s. And whoops, yep, also probably not the least racist person ever. So, all right. So that's the worst thing. Now, on many levels, let's look on the bright sides. What about the the best thing about it? What about the thing that you just love and could keep doing forever? Well, I mean, I just love the fact that all of this is working towards a a legacy of something that I have enjoyed and really appreciated, interaction with the natural world and hoping we can continue that for other people. But, you know, sort of on a day-to-day basis, I just also love the people that are involved in in the conservation space in the world, you know, in, in all sorts of aspects of it. It's just a really very collegiate and and interesting enjoyable group of people to to be on this mission with now i'm sure that you have so many different people who do so many different things as well it's got to be cool to see all these ideas come together it is it is and you know acoustics is a a great idea because that's opened up a whole new pile of people i guess we discussed who are are now getting involved and new people who are interested in it so i've got to talk to a lot of people that i wouldn't have elsewise so Mm -hmm. yeah Tracks a great cast of people. Oh, that's awesome. Thank you so much for talking to me. This has been so illuminating, illuminating and uh, music to my ears. Hey, pleasure, Ali. Thanks for, thanks for having the conversation. So ask quiet ecologists loud, brazen questions, but actually, but do it politely because, you know, there's a whole world that you can learn about when you listen. So ask questions, take a risk. You're good. Also, thank you to everyone who's just been listening to my secrets at the end of the shows the last couple of weeks and wishing me and my family all the best. I'm really grateful for you and for science as we just keep on keeping on. Cancer be damned. Thank you to Dr. Eddie Game and the Nature Conservancy, which you can find at nature.org. A ton of links are up on my website at aliward.com slash ologies slash acoustic ecology, which is linked in the show notes too. You don't have to write it down. Thank you to Aaron Talbert for adminning the Ologies Podcast Facebook group. Thanks Shannon Feltis and Bonnie Dutch who help out too. Thank you to every patron at patreon.com slash ologies who supports the show and sends in questions. It's a buck a month to join. Uh, Susan Hale does so much behind the scenes, including handling merch at ologiesmerch.com if you want it. Thank you, Noelle Dilworth, for all the scheduling and amazingness. Emily White of The Wordery makes our professional transcripts. Caleb Patton bleeps episodes, and those are both up for free on our website at aliwar.com slash ologies extras. Every few weeks, we release a new Smologies episode, which has been trimmed of sex and filth and my swears and made bite-sized for all ages. Zeke Rodriguez-Thomas of MindJam Media makes those happen with assists from Stephen Ray Morris. Kelly Dwyer is the website wrangler. She could make yours too. Nick Thorburn of the band Islands made the theme music, and each week the bird song of my dawn, Jarrett Sleeper of Mind Jam Media, puts these all together and boosts sounds where it's quiet and is also helping me and my family out so much. I just want to throw him a parade every day. So, just in case anyone's ever on the fence about marrying their longtime crush who's also a sound engineer, I've just Personally, it's worked out great for me. So five stars on Yelp. And if you stick around until the end of the episode, I tell you a secret. This week's secret is that today's highlight was pointing out some deer uh, out of the back window for my dad, who loved spotting them from under a blanket in his cozy chair and taking pictures on his iPad. Um, Also, another secret is sometimes I'm really afraid to read the reviews at the top of the show. I'm like, oh, hope these are nice. So thank you to everyone who always leaves nice ones. For real, it's... 
makes my day. Okay. Thanks for sticking around. Bye-bye. Hear the birds? Mm-hmm.